You're listening to Playback, a Variety podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. Today's show is brought to you by Fox Searchlight Pictures, presenting Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Nominated for six Golden Globe Awards, including director Martin McDonough, actress Frances McDormand, and Best Picture of the Year. For your consideration in all categories. Those are here? Yeah. They're all for our podcasts. <clears throat> nice. Yeah, the Mills Cardcard is great. <laughs> Pennywise himself. Yeah. That was one of our most popular episodes. Yeah? Did you know that? Really? Yeah, like by far one of our most good. popular ones. Okay. They sent me the download numbers. I was like, holy crap. People really? Like this movie and this guy. By Just, a lot. Yeah. yeah. All right, so he's going to pop up with a few, few quick photos. Sure. We'll just not, talk like we're just pretending we're doing. Nothing. We're just pretending. We just pretend. You closed the bar <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> I did. I closed the bar down, man. Dude, you know I, I never never like drinking. I'm yeah. less and less. I like it. Yeah. It's like I, the next morning I'm like, oh, why did I do that? I wasn't to milkshakes. Milkshakes will do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I, that I'll tell you. Or that's why Bailey's or any of that Bailey's, super yeah. fucking. Like, such a bad thing to order. Yeah. Give me a high Bailey's in calories. The dough. High in calories. <laughs> high in calories. Completely on Mad Men, you know? <laughs> it was cool hanging out with you and Sam. Yeah. He's the best, man. He was on here a few weeks back. He's brilliant, man. He's right. a brilliant actor. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Well, we're speeding on sound, so let's dive right in. We've got Guillermo del Toro here on the show today, director of The Shape of Water. Uh, this movie uh, at Venice must have just been a dream come true the way it was accepted there. So I wanted yes. to start there with the Venice Film Festival experience and what was it like uh, just being so embraced the way it was there. It was really crazy. It's happened two times in my life. It happened at Cannes with uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. And at Venice, the, uh, there were many big differences. Uh, at Cannes, it played the penultimate day or almost the, the, the night before uh, closing, you know, and most of the press was gone. You know, it played to a packed audience, and we got a 23, 25 standing ovation. And, but, you know, it was so overwhelming that Alfonso Guaron, who was with me, he noticed that I was like getting flustered and he said it's love man let it in you know because I was getting so nervous because 25 minutes is my commute <laughs> right <laughs> like I listened to NPR yeah for 25 minutes and and and, uh, and you know then now 11 years later with Shape of Water it played great like in both instances it played beautifully vocally with the audience mm-hmm. meaning there were gasps there were laughter there was scattered applause in the beginning and you know people were reacting and that's very rare mm-hmm. on on a festival and then at the end of the uh, of the screening uh there was a standing ovation in, in venice and it it really really 
uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was like a wave of, uh, of emotion for me. Yeah. It really overwhelmed me for, for, um, for many reasons. The movie was very hard to shoot. You know, mm -hmm. the movie was difficult. The budget was uh, very determinedly low, so we could make it look huge mm -hmm. for a smaller number, 19.5. Which I can't believe. But. Yeah, it's <laughs> absolutely. And not only that, we ended up, here's the news of this week, we ended up 100,000 under budget. Wow. Officially, as of yesterday. Wow. So, you know. Congratulations. We covered all contingencies, everything. And, 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 and the way was, the applause was so beautiful. And then it went through the credits, past the credits, until we left the room. And, and uh, you know, uh, I've had movies that I've loved that have not been received that way. Yeah. And it hurts. Mm -hmm. And when it happens that the audience embraces it, and every kind of audience, you know, 60-year-olds, teenagers uh, it was a very varied audience it was beautiful yeah what's the germ of this idea like how far back were you thinking about making this movie like what what sparked i mean you spoke a little bit about this at telluride where i saw the film yeah but just uh you know, i'm just curious how far back the germ of this idea for the movie went well it's great because it's, it's it's full circle in many ways for many reasons you know it started when i was six and i saw julie adams swimming and creatures from a Black Lagoon and the creature swimming underneath, contemplating her, you know? Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a beautiful image. Even at age six, I was enraptured by it. And I was enraptured by the love that it had, the romance it had. But, of course, they they didn't end up together, mm -hmm. you know? And I and it was <laughs> something I kept thinking about. I, I thought, well, you know, this was a very unfair movie, I thought. Because mm -hmm. they break into the home of the guy uh, and they kill him. Basically, <laughs> this is a very tragic movie for me. I've always uh, seen monsters as very spiritual figures for me, very metaphorical, you know, sort of embodied concepts for me. And, and, and I stayed with that. And then in 2011, you know, the project started as such. And it took uh, five or six years to get it made and properly rendered and, and writing writing it the the seed that reignited is to go through the janitors, mm -hmm. to go through the invisible people, the people without voice, mm -hmm. uh, because it's a movie about the other. Mm -hmm. It's a movie about embracing the otherness, finding the divine, the lovable, the beautiful, and the other, as opposed to the fear and the rage and all these things that we are living today. And mm -hmm. and that's why I subtitled the movie. It said. Um, uh, the Shape of Water, a fairy tale for troubled times, mm -hmm. because I felt it was like that for me. It was to talk about love without being corny, to talk about emotions, which is now much harder. I mean, I think we're in a very difficult age for emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, we 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 can talk cynically, we can talk uh, with iron, uh, irony, you know, and it really sounds smart. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about emotions, normally you sound this ingenious. Right. And I thought, it, it, let's take the risk, let's embrace a movie that is in love with love, in love with cinema, you know, make it a beautifully sort of classic Douglas Sirk, uh, Technicolor, all the beauty that we can put in the screen and, and go at it with emotion. You know? Why do you think that is, that, uh, is to your point about cynicism today? I mean, when you say that, when you say that, like, you know, people speak with irony and you sound smart. It seems like something that would be driven by the Internet age in a, in a way. But well, what, what do you think? It's driven by fear and isolation, really. I mean, the, look, uh, the, the, the fact is uh, ideologies 
uh, are, you know, there's a difference, major difference between ideas and ideologies. Yeah. And when an ideology comes to play, uh, is what separates you from others. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, an ideology is the only thing that allows a person to grab a baton and beat another human being. Mm-hmm. Because you are reduced to a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are reduced to your race, you're an immigrant, or you're reduced to your gender, mm-hmm. and, and, and it allows the person to dehumanize you. Mm-hmm. you know? And uh, the key to that, the solution to that is love. Mm-hmm. Because, and I know this sounds silly, but it is. It's, it's the one cosmic force the Beatles, Buddha, and uh, Jesus agreed upon, <laughs> and, and it's because love is understanding. Mm-hmm. Is empathy, mm-hmm. you know, and when you empathize, when you walk in another person's shoes for a couple of minutes, you understand the entirety of their persona, not not just the identity that an ideology gave them. So we are like the the discourse socially is so exacerbated right now, is so rife with anger and resentment, and 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 I think that partially. Yes, you can talk about social media, but also politically, and we've come to the point, and it's one of the oldest techniques, there are two possible explanations why your situation is bad socially. A, 1% of the people own about 90% of the wealth, or B, quote-unquote, them, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call them, immigration, race, and the first one makes you take an active role. The second one absolves you. Mm-hmm. The second one is telling you, no, 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 you're right, you're fine. It's them that are the problem. And, and very easily you pour the hatred into them. Mm-hmm. But that's not the real problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is used politically more and more and more to deflect, distract, you know. So there are many factors. And the movie is at the same time very humane and very political. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, look, the moment the, when you take a stance in any narrative, it's a political stance. If you tell the story of Waterloo from Napoleon's point of view, is one movie. If you tell it from the person ironing his trousers, that's another one. And that's what we did on Shape of Water. We, we told you a story, not through the agents and the scientists, but through the cleaning, uh, through the janitors in the place, you know, mm-hmm. the cleaning women that have to wipe the toilets, empty the trash bins. And from that moment, and taking the point of view of not the hero, but the monster, you already are taking a political stance. Yeah, all of that reminds me. I just want to jump ahead a little bit, and I'll come back to your film. But that all of that reminds me of Carnier Arena, yeah, the, uh, your of friend Alejandro's VR installation, which mm-hmm. I was fortunate to check out two mm-hmm. weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, at the Governor's Awards. Recently, yes. he received this special uh, Oscar, which was yeah. fantastic, yeah. And, and and he spoke a lot to those ideas, uh, these ideas. concepts, you know, ideas and ideologies. Um, yeah, have you? I assume you've done this Carnier Arena. Yes, of course. I, I did it early on. Yeah. I did it. Uh, he showed me stuff in, in while he was uh, making it. And Alejandro Alfonso and I often talk about this. It's, it's very strange because when we were, uh, 10 years ago, when we were together with uh, Children of Man, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, and Babel, we were sort of thematically <laughs> doing yeah. the same thing. Yeah. And now, 10 years later, we are the three of us are preoccupied by the same thing, yeah. and we we believe f- firmly, each of us in our different way, that uh, empathy mm-hmm. is not only needed is uh, is urgent, and each of us goes at it in a different way. What did you think of that experience, the Carney Arena, the just the multimedia like 
is that something you're interested in pursuing I, at all? I, I, I am, but I, and I'm not in a hurry. I mean, yeah. I think I told Alejandro, for me, every BR experience I had done before that was like the train arriving to the station by Lumiere. You know, <laughs> it was sort of a just a, a testimonial thing of what the medium could do, but not a language, syntax, or dramatic experience at all. They mm-hmm. were almost like amusement park rides. Mm-hmm. And then I come into Carne and, and Arena, and I said to him, for me, this is... Uh, intolerance, or is uh, Potemkin, or is something else? Is 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 a new language? A new language yeah. finally being articulated to create a narrative experience, and it's yeah. a very difficult one. It's a very when people say well, it's the future of cinema, no, it's his own thing. Yeah, it's entirely different, and it was very moving, very powerful. I felt very proud uh, to 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 be a friend of the the man that was pushing the men, uh, both Chibo and him, that were pushing that boundary. But the the most important thing is, look, you can take VR, make an, a remarkable experience, and if you do it in an amusement park way, well, you know, the gain is lessened. I, I thought that it was very brave of them and legendary and everybody that supported LAGMA to do it as a, as an art piece, mm-hmm. as an, a social, uh, socially conscious piece. What was your instinct when you did it? Because I, I, I spoke to Alejandro last week about that, and uh, just, you know, some people participate essentially get on their knees or mm-hmm. go and try to hug the people or my my instinct was to kind of hang back yeah. and like kind of force like a proscenium to to observe and then maybe try to mingle throughout it was just i'm curious what your instinct i was. did it twice mm-hmm. full i mean when everything was working and, and and the first time i got involved i let myself go mm-hmm. with the experience and the second time i was uh, very curious technically. Mm-hmm. I was checking the limits of the place. I was checking why why they were put, how they worked, you know, because uh, I've designed um, and created Bibles for a video game. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and there is a little bit of common language in the way you define the sandbox. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in that because I think that to learn a new language always helps the other languages you speak mm-hmm. visually. And I, I, and I was, so I, I had both experiences. The first one was incredibly moving, the whole thing. And one of the things that moved me the most curiously was the physical presence of the wall. Yeah. That that impacted me at a level that that was very simple and very primal because the, 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 the experience here is a combination of your marveling mm-hmm. at the virtuosity of the medium and feeling the emotions, yeah. you know. But with the wall, it's just there and yeah. it's real. Yeah. Just so everyone knows what we're talking about, this is a virtual reality installation where you are essentially plopped down in the middle of a border crossing. And there's a piece of the wall. And there's a piece of the wall there, and it's uh, it's a very uh, interesting piece yeah. over at LACMA. Yeah. yeah. Going back to Shape of, Shape of Water, I, I found this to be one of your most, if not your most, formally impressive and astounding films, and which is why the budget blows my mind. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it's it's a different, you know, as was Pan's Labyrinth, certainly very formally amazing, but... There's two aesthetics. There's two different aesthetics, I feel, yeah. between these two films. So what I'm curious about is, like, what did you want Shape of Water to look like? What did you talk to your DP about? Were there any, like, was there photography touchstones? Like, what Well, I think that everything uh, everything is a single department visually, and we'll talk about it in a second. But what was curious is the easiest way to define it is, you know, everything I've done in a quarter of a century as a filmmaker led me to this one. You know, and but the the more colloquial and in a visceral way, truthful way to say it is, I finally exhaled. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I felt like I've been holding my breath for 
20 something years and at, at age 20 at age 52 I really really positioned myself as a person and I said what am I going to do that I haven't done mm -hmm. and it meant actually allowing a certain humanity to breathe into the movie in a very different way than I, I, I you know even Pants or Devil's Backbone can be formally uh, you know uh, as good as each other but they they had um, a somberness or a, a, a tension that this movie doesn't this movie is and is very human mm -hmm. in the way it was made and, and, and part of it was the way I approached the budget and this, this came from seeing Alejandro in two experiences, you know, Alejandro, Alfonso, and myself, we did Beautiful, which was a, a, a sort of big movie, twenty something million dollars, mm -hmm. you know, and, and nevertheless, uh, I felt the scale was equal to his other movies that had costed less, mm -hmm. and then I then he said, I'm going to do a smaller movie, which was Birdman, and Birdman looked bigger <laughs> mm -hmm. than his other movies, all of them put together, mm -hmm. and I thought, you know, budget is a state of mind. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do, and I had just gone through the very painful uh, experience of Crimson Peak, which was, you know, a $55 million movie that was, that then forced, uh, by the number it was made, it forced the marketing to go as wide as they could, and they, it was marketed as a horror film. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. It was a gothic romance, and I, I felt really, you know, sort of heartbroken, and I said, I got to do the movie for a budget that allows it to be marketed for what it is, mm -hmm. you know? So made, the ambition for it was to make it feel like a classical movie, mm -hmm. like a Douglas Sirk melodrama, that Vincent, Vincente Minelli, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, 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 Stanley Donen, right. you know, roaming camera. So there's there's not a single shot in the movie that is not on a crane, a dolly, steadicam, track, mini jib. The, the camera is always moving. There's not a single static shot. And and, uh, and and to give it this almost like the feeling of a musical mm -hmm. so that it, it, when we open, you almost feel like a character is going to break into song. You would have probably shot it on Technicolor if you could have. I would have, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I would have, but, I, you know, 19.5. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, but, but it was really the exercise to, I said, let's, 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 and also it's the first time I talk about adult preoccupations mm -hmm. uh, and adult thematics and before I was talking very adult like you know with a very adult voice about children things like things that shaped me as a kid mm -hmm. and now I'm talking about things that shaped me as an adult mm -hmm. you know yeah uh, the acceptance desire love uh, uh, empathy sexuality you know the the fact that we we can open the movie uh very, very uh, naturally, with uh, the heroine masturbating <laughs> in the bathtub, right. and we can have totally caught me off guard. By the yeah, way, <laughs> yeah, but but it, it, what I wanted is to to treat uh, to treat everything in the movie in in, in a very humane, natural, uh, embracing way. You know, the only sex in the movie that is kinky to the surprise of the audience is the. The straight uh, sex between the antagonist and his yeah. wife—that is sort of Ken and Barbie getting really <laughs> possessive and, <laughs> right. and overwhelming. You know, the the rest of the iterations of human desire in the movie are treated with with a very warm and very uh, encompassing view. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Sally Hawkins—I mean, she's wonderful. It's it. How did, how did you 
decide on her for the role? I wrote it for her yeah. from the beginning. I wrote it for her, and several years before even meeting her, I sent the message, I'm writing this movie for you. And it's because she has, uh, I wanted, I, again, I, I wanted from the start to define with the scene in the bathtub, with, with thematically and visually say to you, this is a beauty and the beast in which the beauty is not just a princess in a pedestal. Mm-hmm. She's somebody that you could find in a bus stop, mm-hmm. you know. It's just not a model turned actress or a beautiful superstar that is pretending to clean bathrooms. It's a, a regular person that as the camera grows closer, you fall in love with and realize that she has one of the most luminous, beautiful faces in the world because that's the way you fall in love, you yeah. know. And and she did it silent. I wrote her... Uh, to do it uh, like a, a mute performance mm-hmm. because I wanted to, first of all, love renders you speechless. Mm-hmm. And the second level was, and the only way you can talk about love is singing. So there's that key sequence in the movie where all of a sudden she, in her head, she can sing, mm-hmm. you know, and it becomes a musical for a moment. But That is destined to be on reels <laughs> <laughs> for hundreds of years, I feel like that sequence is like a new modern, like cinematic. Thank you, uh, but, but but that's the thing I, I I decided to do, and I and I shared it with my kids as a as a father. I said, look, I'm 52 and I'm gonna try something new, and I wanted to know this because I'm gonna be doing things that are not safe. Mm-hmm. but that I think should be done. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise I'm repeating the same model of movie that I know how to do again and again and again until, you know, you become stale. Did this movie feel like it uh, unlocked anything for you going forward? Yes, yes. Like, like uh, informing? Completely. It, yeah. may be, it may be true, it may be false, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the importance of the, 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 the very moving thing for me, receiving the Golden Lion in Venice was that moment in which and it's this moment in which we are right now uh, to to get again into the conversation with a movie that did not betray me. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to do a movie about the life of Louis Pasteur mm-hmm. to get into an awards conversation. Both times I've been there, I have been under under my my own uh, exception, yeah. which is not. I don't know what I do. I know I'm not. People say, oh, "Are you a horror filmmaker? Are you a fantasy?" I don't know what I do. I I, I'm, I love fables, mm-hmm. and I, I you know the way I mix things. You know, I, I love musicals, thrillers, my movies, and I do my own thing with them. You know, mm-hmm. but to be in the conversation or to receive the lion in those circumstances is what makes it very moving. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I wanted to branch out a little bit and talk about a couple other things. Yeah. Uh, first of all, what what happened with Pinocchio? That sounded like such a. It was a dark spin. It was going to be kind of it's a fascist Italy. It was. Yeah, yeah. It sounded like a great. It idea, is. A, it but. is a great one. I think that um, you know, uh, we're still looking. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Searchlight about it mm-hmm. right now. You know, I can I never give up. I mean, okay. this, I have this ring because it's uh, uh, from the Mountains of Madness. Ah, a yes. novel, so I carry it until I make the movie. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't give up. I just keep going. Uh, what I know is I've written twenty-four or co-written twenty-four screenplays or twenty-five. I've only made ten movies. That means that fourteen years of my life easily have been wasted in things that don't happen, and I'm fine with that because look, number one, you know, culturally, all of us are transitional, so I'm at peace with that. Mm-hmm. The world will go on, mm-hmm. not a problem. 
And second of all, I'm, it was all of them have been learning experiences. So right. Pinocchio, I hope it happens. I, I would start it immediately because it's animation. It'll take four years, and and you know we're waiting for somebody to to to, to be brave and pull the trigger, which was, is what happened with Searchlight. Mm-hmm. You know they listened to my entire pitch, saw my my pages, saw my designs. I financed three years uh, uh, the, the design of the creature and the and and written write, the screenplay and all that, and then they said, yeah, yeah, yeah let's do it. You know, and 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 they, but they said. Not a cent more than nineteen point five, and I said, "Can that include my salary, minus my guild minimum?" And they said, "Yeah," and so that's exactly what we did. I knew my salary was my contingency. I spent it all except my minimum. I'm loyal to my guild, <laughs> and that was it. We were able to deliver it, and now I got a uh, hundred thousand dollars change <laughs> <laughs> as of this week. That's cool. Hopefully, Pinocchio works out because I think that's I want to. You know, the reason I love Pinocchio is the same reason I love Frankenstein. They are essentially the same fable. The fable of a, 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 an innocent creature thrown into the world by an uncaring father mm-hmm. and learning about ethics and spirituality along the way. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Something else you're working on that I just recently heard about I think is fascinating, this Michael Mann documentary. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, it's not so much a documentary. The, I'm doing two weeks of interviews uh-huh. with Michael Mann and two weeks of interviews with George Miller. Okay, and this is this happens this year because it's my sabbatical. I mean, I'm taking this year to breathe and learn and live, which is to answer your question already how it affected me. The movie, for the first time in my life, I said I'm going to take a year off directing, which means I'm only going to be producing three series for Netflix, <laughs> and two movies for Searchlight, taking off in your own way, <laughs> in my own way as director. But I said, what what do I want to do? And I want to memorialize. Michael Mann's craft and George Miller's craft and their artistic vision because they are two artists that work in a, in a vernacular visually that is so unique to them. Yeah. And I want I don't want them to go and not dissect it. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about lenses, uh, camera moves, uh, the, the sc- storytelling through the visuals because I feel that we need that level of discourse. When we talk about movies, uh, very seldom do we discuss the fact that... Uh, the visual language is more uh, proportionately epic than any other medium. When you see TV, and I agree, long arc TV and cable have revolutionized narrative because the long narrative is closer to literature mm-hmm. and the characters can be known more in depth, but it's not a generator of mythical images. You know, you can barely quote three or four images from The Sopranos or Deadwood, specific images, the way you quote the elevators flowing with blood in The Shining, the way you can uh, quote uh, Gene Kelly hanging onto the lamppost and singing in the rain, the way you can uh, quote uh, uh, Kane talking in front of his posters. In Why Citizen is May. I mean, because I think the heft and the, and the weight of narrative goes into a different part of the scale. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, what I try to say is it is urgent for us to start discussing the fact that we are a medium in which the form and the message are one and the same because that's unique to cinema. Right. Uh, and, and I really I want to formalize it by talking to Miller, by talking to Mann, and by any... I mean, I admire probably five living filmmakers that I would interview in that depth mm-hmm. that I find mythical in proportion. Mm-hmm. And if I can, and they allow me, I would interview them one by one. Michael is easily one of my favorite working directors. I... Uh, 
I, I pinch myself often that I've been able to have any kind of a professional relationship with him because Heat is probably like no, the movie that made me want to American Masterpiece. Yes. Yeah. So I can't wait for that. That's awesome. Uh, and now how about Carnival Row? This is the Amazon series. Yeah, yeah. But I'm involved. Uh, I'm involved. I was involved in gestating it. Mm-hmm. I'm not involved. You're not involved anymore? No. no. Oh, okay. I was involved in, in the first incarnation. Uh, guided it through the first pilot in writing, and then you know Rene Chavaria is the one leading that series. Okay, that's uh, you know as I was telling you last night, I went to film school with Travis Beecham, who wrote yeah. Pacific Rim. With- Tra- Travis is a, a great guy. Yeah, and a, a great idea, man. But you know the two projects with Legendary that I was involved with on the beginning, which were Pacific Rim and Carnival Row, they are running on their own now. You yeah, know, I'm, I'm involved. I was involved in just stating them. I'm not involved on a day-to-day basis. I'm just glad he finally got that thing going because, yeah. you know, he wrote that when he was in film school. And, and it's his it was, best screenplay. Yeah, absolutely. Such great world-building. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's been That's what, that was great about Travis. He he really gets worlds fully formed in his head, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And he's truly, truly uh, almost uh, a unique, a savant, you know? <laughs> absolutely. Uh, well, the movie is called The Shape of Water. Uh, it should be out by the time we air this podcast, so you should go see it. Uh, it's one of your finest hours. So it's my favorite I've done. Is yeah. it? Yeah. Well, then, I mean, what what more can you ask for? <laughs> Everything else is just gravy. It is. All you, all, all you want is to uh, – oh, actually, I was going to ask that earlier. I mean, is, do you aim to – because you were talking about receiving the love from Venice and how when you don't receive it for something you're passionate about, how that yeah. hurts. I mean, yeah. is your first goal to be personally satisfied with the work? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are two acts, two different acts in creating a movie. The first one is an artistic act that mm-hmm. that concerns solely yourself and the, and the movie. That, you know, even movies that disappoint you uh, later, they remain cherished mm-hmm. to, to you. you yeah. know, that's the first, there's a declaration. Mm-hmm. And the second act is communication. You reach out an audience, you try to find solace in the way it echoes with other people. Not so much in numbers, but in depth. Mm-hmm. Like how deeply, like some movies affect people at a very molecular level. Like they change who they are. They become, those, that's the best experience. Yeah. The best experience I have is when, when somebody sees Pan's Labyrinth and says, uh, I fell in love with the movie. I see it every year, blah, blah, blah. Or a 10 year old, 8 year old that saw Pacific Rim mm-hmm. and it becomes, uh, sort of his go to or her go to. Mm-hmm. Movie in 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 that genre, you know. Yeah. But it's very satisfying. That that second act, when it doesn't happen in the short term, it is really hurtful. Yeah, it is. Well, happily, this one is a different story. So it has been. So enjoy far. your uh, your time off in your own way. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, again, everybody, go see it. Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro. Thank you for coming on the show, sir. My pleasure, man. If I told you about her. Princess without voice. What would I say? Eliza, come on. Eliza, hurry, hurry. She deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you. You clean that lab, you get out. 
This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human. Stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. When he looks at me, he doesn't know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. J'avoue, j'en ai bavé pas vous, mon amour. Avant d'avoir eu vent de vous. The natives in the Amazon worshipped it like a god. Get him out. What are you talking about? No. We need to take it apart, learn how it works. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. We can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Alasa. What is she saying? Don't do this. It's not even human. If I told you about her, what would I say? I wonder. Once again, today's show is brought to you by Fox Searchlight Pictures, presenting three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Nominated for four Screen Actors Guild Awards, including Best Actress Frances McDormand, Best Supporting Actors Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell, and Outstanding Performance by a Cast. For your consideration in all categories. 